Dead Souls, Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Translated by D.J. Hogarth. Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 1. For more than two weeks the visitor lived amid a round of evening parties and dinners, wherefore he spent, as the saying goes, a very pleasant time. Finally he decided to extend his visits beyond the urban boundaries by going and calling upon landowners Manilov and Sobakovich, seeing that he had promised on his honor to do so. Yet what really incited him to this may have been a more essential cause, a matter of greater gravity, a purpose which stood nearer to his heart than the motive which I have just given, and of that purpose the reader will learn if only he will have the patience to read this prefatory narrative, which, lengthy though it may be, may yet develop and expand in proportion as we approach the denouement with which the present work is destined to be crowned. One evening, therefore, Selifan, the coachman, received orders to have the horses harnessed in good time next morning, while Petrushka received orders to remain behind for the purpose of looking after the portmanteau and the room. In passing, the reader may care to become more fully acquainted with the two serving-men of whom I have spoken. Naturally, they were not persons of much note, but merely what folk call characters of secondary or even tertiary importance. Yet, despite the fact that the springs and the thread of this romance will not depend upon them, but only touch upon them, and occasionally include them, the author has a passion for circumstantiality, and, like the average Russian, such a desire for accuracy as even a German could not rival. To what the reader already knows concerning the personages in hand, it is therefore necessary to add that Petrushka actually wore a cast-off brown jacket of a size too large for him, as also that he had, according to the custom of individuals of his calling, a pair of thick lips and a very prominent nose. In temperament he was taciturn rather than loquacious, and he cherished a yearning for self-education. That is to say, he loved to read books, even though their contents came alike to him, whether they were books of heroic adventure or mere grammars or liturgical compendia. As I say, he perused every book with an equal amount of attention, and had he been offered a work on chemistry, would have accepted that also. Not the words which he read, but the mere solace derived from the act of reading was what especially pleased his mind. Even though at any moment there might launch itself from the page some devil-sent word whereof he could make neither head nor tail. For the most part, his task of reading was performed in a recumbent position in the anteroom, which circumstance ended by causing his mattress to become as ragged and as thin as a wafer. In addition to his love of poring over books, he could boast of two habits which constituted two other essential features of his character, namely a habit of retiring to rest in his clothes, that is to say, in the brown jacket above mentioned, and a habit of everywhere bearing with him his own peculiar atmosphere, his own peculiar smell, a smell which filled any lodging with such subtlety that he needed but to make up his bed anywhere even in a room hitherto untenanted, and to drag thither his great coat and other impedimenta 
for that room at once to assume an air of having been lived in during the past ten years. Nevertheless, though a fastidious and even an irritable man, Chichikov would merely frown when his nose caught this smell amid the freshness of the morning, and exclaim with a toss of his head, The devil only knows what is up with you. Surely you sweat a good deal, do you not? The best thing you can do is go and take a bath. To this Petrushka would make no reply, but, approaching, brush in hand, the spot where his master's coat would be pendant, or starting to arrange one and another article in order, would strive to seem wholly immersed in his work. Yet of what was he thinking as he remained thus silent? Perhaps he was saying to himself, My master is a good fellow, but for him to keep on saying the same thing forty times over is a little wearisome. Only God knows and sees all things. Wherefore, for a mere human being to know what is in the mind of a servant while his master is scolding him is wholly impossible. However, no more need be said about Petrushka. On the other hand, Coachman Selifan. But here let me remark that I do not like engaging the reader's attention in connection with persons of a lower class than himself. For experience has taught me that we do not willingly familiarize ourselves with the lower orders, that it is the custom of the average Russian to yearn exclusively for information concerning persons on the higher rungs of the social ladder. In fact, even a bowing acquaintance with a prince or lord counts in his eyes for more than do the most intimate of relations with ordinary folk. For the same reason the author feels apprehensive on his hero's account, seeing that he has made that hero a mere collegiate counselor, a mere person with whom Aulic counselors might consort, but upon whom persons of the grade of full general, note one, would probably bestow one of those glances proper to a man who is cringing at their august feet. Worse still, such persons of the grade of general are likely to treat Chichikov with studied negligence, and to an author studied negligence spells death. Note 1. In this case the term general refers to a civil grade equivalent to the military rank of the same title. However, in spite of the distressfulness of the foregoing possibilities, it is time that I return to my hero. After issuing overnight the necessary orders, he awoke early, washed himself, rubbed himself from head to foot with a wet sponge, a performance executed only on Sundays, and the day in question happened to be a Sunday, shaved his face with such care that his cheeks issued of absolutely satin-like smoothness and polish, donned his first bilberry-colored spotted frock-coat, and then his bearskin overcoat, descended the staircase, attended throughout by the waiter, and entered his britchka. With a loud rattle the vehicle left the inn-yard and issued into the street. A passing priest doffed his cap, and a few urchins in grimy shirts shouted, "'Gentlemen, please give a poor orphan a trifle!' Presently the driver noticed that a sturdy young rascal was on the point of climbing onto the splashboard, wherefore he cracked his whip and the britchka leapt forward with increased speed over the cobblestones. At last, with a feeling of relief, the travellers caught sight of Macadam ahead, which promised an end both to the cobblestones and to sundry other annoyances. 
and, sure enough, after his head had been bumped a few more times against the boot of the conveyance, Chichikov found himself bowling over softer ground. On the town receding into the distance, the sides of the road began to be varied with the usual hillocks, fir-trees, clumps of young pine, trees with old scarred trunks, bushes of wild juniper, and so forth. Presently there came into view also strings of country villas, which, with their carved supports and grey roofs, the latter looking like pendant embroidered tablecloths, resembled rather bundles of old faggots. Likewise the customary peasants, dressed in sheepskin jackets, could be seen yawning on benches before their huts, while their womenfolk, fat of feature and swathed of bosom, gazed out of upper windows, and the windows below displayed here a peering calf, and there the unsightly jaws of a pig. In short, the view was one of the familiar type. After passing the fifteenth verse stone, Chichikov suddenly recollected that, according to Manilov, fifteen versts was the exact distance between his country house and the town, but the sixteenth verst stone flew by, and the said country house was still nowhere to be seen. In fact, but for the circumstance that the travellers happened to encounter a couple of peasants, they would have come on their errand in Maine. To a query as to whether the country house known as Zamanilovka was anywhere in the neighbourhood, the peasants replied by doffing their caps, after which one of them, who seemed to boast of a little more intelligence than his companion, and who wore a wedge-shaped beard, made answer, Perhaps you mean Manilovka, not Zamanilovka? Yes, yes, Manilovka. Manilovka, eh? Well, you must continue for another verst, and then you will see it straight before you on the right. On the right? re-echoed the coachman. Yes, on the right, affirmed the peasant. You are on the proper road for Manilovka, but Zamanilovka, well, there is no such place. The house you mean is called Manilovka, because Manilovka is its name, but no house at all is called Zamanilovka. The house you mean stands there, on that hill, and is a stone house in which a gentleman lives, and its name is Manilovka. But Zamanilovka does not stand hereabouts, nor ever has stood. So the travellers proceeded in search of Manilovka, and, after driving an additional two versts, arrived at a spot whence there branched off a by-road. Yet two, three, or four versts of the by-road had been covered before they saw the least sign of a two-storied stone mansion. Then it was that Chichikov suddenly recollected that, when a friend has invited one to visit his country house, and has said that the distance thereto is fifteen versts, the distance is sure to turn out to be at least thirty. Not many people would have admired the situation of Manilov's abode, for it stood on an isolated rise and was open to every wind that blew. On the slope of the rise lay closely mown turf, while disposed here and there, after the English fashion, were flower-beds containing clumps of lilac and yellow acacia. Also there were a few insignificant groups of slender-leaved, pointed-tipped birch-trees which, under two of the latter, an arbor having a shabby green cupola, some blue painted wooden supports, and the inscription, This is the temple of solitary thought. 
Lower down the slope lay a green-coated pond. Green-coated ponds constitute a frequent spectacle in the gardens of Russian landowners. And, lastly, from the foot of the declivity there stretched a line of moldy log-built huts which, for some obscure reason or another, our hero set himself to count. Up to two hundred or more did he count, but nowhere could he perceive a single leaf of vegetation or a single stick of timber. The only thing to greet the eye was the logs of which the huts were constructed. Nevertheless, the scene was to a certain extent enlivened by the spectacle of two peasant women who, with clothes picturesquely tucked up, were wading knee-deep in the pond and dragging behind them, with wooden handles, a ragged fishing net, in the meshes of which two crawfish and a roach with glistening scales were entangled. The women appeared to have cause of dispute between themselves, to be raiding one another about something. In the background, and to one side of the house, showed a faint, dusky blur of pine wood, and even the weather was in keeping with the surroundings, since the day was neither clear nor dull, but of the grey tint which may be noted in uniforms of garrison soldiers which have seen long service. To complete the picture, a cock, the recognized harbinger of atmospheric mutations, was present and, in spite of the fact that a certain connection with affairs of gallantry had led to his having had his head pecked bare by other cocks, he flapped a pair of wings, appendages as bare as two pieces of bast, and crowed loudly. As Chichikov approached the courtyard of the mansion, he caught sight of his host, clad in a green frock-coat, standing on the veranda and pressing one hand to his eyes to shield them from the sun and to get a better view of the approaching carriage. In proportion, as the britchka drew nearer and nearer to the veranda, the host's eyes assumed a more and more delighted expression, and his smile a broader and broader sweep. "'Paul Ivanovitch!' he exclaimed when at length Chichikov leapt from the vehicle. Never should I have believed that you would have remembered us. The two friends exchanged hearty embraces, and Manilov then conducted his guest to the drawing-room. During the brief time that they are traversing the hall, the ante-room, and the dining-room, let me try to say something concerning the master of the house. But such an undertaking bristles with difficulties. It promises to be a far less easy task than the depicting of some outstanding personality which calls but for a wholesale dashing of colors upon the canvas. The colors of a pair of dark, burning eyes, a pair of dark, beetling brows, a forehead seamed with wrinkles, a black or a fiery red cloak thrown backwards over the shoulder, and so forth, and so forth. Yet so numerous are Russian surf owners that, though careful scrutiny reveals to one's sight a quantity of outre peculiarities, they are as a class exceedingly difficult to portray, and one needs to strain one's faculties to the utmost before it becomes possible to pick out their variously subtle, their almost invisible features. In short, one needs before doing this to carry out a prolonged probing with the aid of an insight sharpened in the acute school of research. Only God can say what Manilov's real character was. A class of men exists whom the proverb has described as men unto themselves, neither this nor that, neither Bogdan of the city nor Selifan of the village. And to that class, 
we had better assign also Manilov. Outwardly he was presentable enough, for his features were not wanting in amiability, but that amiability was a quality into which there entered too much of the sugary element, so that his every gesture, his every attitude seemed to connote an excess of eagerness to curry favor and cultivate a closer acquaintance. On first speaking to the man, his ingratiating smile, his flaxen hair, and his blue eyes would lead one to say, what a pleasant, good-tempered fellow he seems! Yet during the next moment or two, one would feel inclined to say nothing at all, and during the third moment only to say, The devil alone knows what he is. And should, thereafter, one not hasten to depart, one would inevitably become overpowered with the deadly sense of ennui, which comes of the intuition that nothing in the least interesting is to be looked for but only a series of wearisome utterances of the kind which are apt to fall from the lips of a man whose hobby has once been touched upon. For every man has his hobby. One man's may be sporting dogs, another man's may be that of believing himself to be a lover of music, and able to sound the art to its inmost depths. Another's may be that of posing as a connoisseur of recherche cookery. Another's may be that of aspiring to play roles of a kind higher than nature has assigned him. Another's, though this is a more limited ambition, may be that of getting drunk, and of dreaming that he is edifying both his friends, his acquaintances, and people with whom he has no connection at all by walking arm-in-arm arm with an imperial aide-de-camp. Another's may be that of possessing a hand able to chip corners off aces and deuces of diamonds, Another's may be that of yearning to set things straight, in other words, to approximate his personality to that of a station-master or a director of posts. In short, almost every man has his hobby or his leaning, yet Manilov had none such, for at home he spoke little and spent the greater part of his time in meditation, though God only knows what that meditation comprised nor can it be said that he took much interest in the management of his estate, for he never rode into the country, and the estate practically managed itself. Whether the bailiff said to him, It might be well to have such and such a thing done, he would reply, Yes, that is not a bad idea, and then go on smoking his pipe, a habit which he had acquired during his service in the army, where he had been looked upon as an officer of modesty, delicacy, and refinement. Yes, it is not a bad idea, he would repeat. Again, whenever a peasant approached him, and, rubbing the back of his neck, said, Baron, may I have leave to go and work for myself, in order that I may earn my obrock? Note 2. He would snap out, with pipe in mouth, as usual, Yes, go, and never trouble his head as to whether the peasant's real object might not be to go and get drunk. True, at intervals, he would say, while gazing from the veranda to the courtyard, and from the courtyard to the pond, that it would be indeed splendid if a carriage drive could suddenly materialize, and the pond as suddenly become spanned with a stone bridge, and little shops as suddenly arise whence peddlers could dispense the petty merchandise of the kind which peasantry most need and at such moments his eyes would grow winning and his features assume an expression of intense satisfaction. 
yet never did these projects pass beyond the stage of debate. Likewise, there lay in his study a book with the fourteenth page permanently turned down. It was a book which he had been reading for the past two years. In general, something seemed to be wanting in the establishment. For instance, although the drawing-room was filled with beautiful furniture and upholstered in some fine silken material which clearly had cost no inconsiderable sum, two of the chairs lacked any covering but bast, and for some years past the master had been accustomed to warn his guest with the words, Do not sit upon these chairs, they are not yet ready for use. Another room contained no furniture at all, although a few days after the marriage it had been said, my dear, to-morrow let us set about procuring at least some temporary furniture for this room. Also, every evening would see placed upon the drawing-room table a fine bronze candelabrum, a statuette representative of the three graces, a tray inlaid with mother-of-pearl, and a rickety lopsided copper invalid. Yet of the fact that all four articles were thickly coated with grease, neither the master of the house nor the mistress nor the servants seemed to entertain the least suspicion. At the same time Manilov and his wife were quite satisfied with each other. More than eight years had elapsed since their marriage, yet one of them was forever offering his or her partner a piece of apple or a bonbon or a nut, while murmuring some tender something which voiced a whole-hearted affection. "'Open your mouth, dearest,' Thus ran the formula, and let me pop into it this titbit. You may be sure that on such occasion the dearest mouth parted its lips most graciously. For their mutual birthdays the pair always contrived some surprise present in the shape of a glass receptacle for tooth powder or what not, and as they sat together on the sofa he would suddenly and for some unknown reason lay aside his pipe and she her work if at the moment she happened to be holding it in her hands, and husband and wife would imprint upon one another's cheeks such a prolonged and languishing kiss that during its continuance you could have smoked a full cigar. In short, they were what is known as a very happy couple. Yet it may be remarked that a household requires other pursuits to be engaged in than lengthy embracings and the preparing of cunning surprises. Yes, Many a function calls for fulfillment. For instance, why should it be thought foolish or low to superintend the kitchen? Why should care not be taken that the storeroom never lacks supplies? Why should a housekeeper be allowed to thieve? Why should slovenly and drunken servants exist? Why should a domestic staff be suffered and indulge in bouts of unconscionable debauchery during its leisure time? Yet none of these things were thought worthy of consideration by Manilov's wife, for she had been gently brought up, and gentle nurture, as we all know, is to be acquired only in boarding schools, and boarding schools, as we know, hold the three principal subjects which constitute the basis of human virtue to be the French language, a thing indispensable to the happiness of married life. Piano playing a thing wherewith to beguile a husband's leisure moments, 
and that particular department of housewifery which is comprised in the knitting of purses and other surprises. Nevertheless, changes and improvements have begun to take place, since things now are governed more by the personal inclinations and idiosyncrasies of the keepers of such establishments. For instance, in some seminaries the regimen places piano-playing first, and the French language second, and then the above department of housewifery, while in other seminaries the knitting of surprises heads the list, and then the French language, and then the playing of pianos. So diverse are the systems in force. Nonetheless, I may remark that Madame Manilov. Note 2. An annual tax upon peasants, payment of which secured to the payer the right of removal. End note 2. But let me confess that I always shrink from saying too much about ladies. Moreover, it is time that we return to our heroes, who, during the past few minutes, have been standing in front of the drawing-room door, and engaged in urging one another to enter first. End of Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 1